0: This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, which is undergoing an extensive renovation to create more exhibition galleries, community and event space, a cafe, and more. See all the changes coming at virginiahistory.org.
1: Hello and welcome to episode three of season five of the How We Got Here podcast. Whew, I cannot believe we're on season five. Thank you so much for your support over the last several years, and of course your downloads and your comments. We are listening. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa. We have two amazing stories from history this week. A ship destined for the Virginia colony is torn apart in the Caribbean in a tale that would inspire the prose of William Shakespeare and a detailed account of the first major battle of the Civil War that showed all involved this was going to be a while. Okay, let's jump right in. We are turning back the clock on the week of July 19th through the 25th. It's called the ship that inspired Shakespeare. The Sea Venture. No, really, The Tempest is loosely based on this most unbelievable tale of a shipwreck. A moment of endurance and sheer human perseverance that altered the fate of Jamestown. So, when we needed someone to tell us about this perilous passage, we reached out to our friends at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation.
0: I'm Bly Straub, and I'm senior curator for the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation.
1: Bly works at the museum, helping the foundation refresh its exhibits. Her background is in archaeology. Remember from a past episode. Totally wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a kid. Didn't happen.
0: I have a Ph.D. from the University of Leicester, England, in archaeology. I've been working in this area on archaeological sites for over 45 years. (laughs) I can't believe how long, you know, that is now. It's getting longer and longer.
1: I feel you, Bly. I feel you. I've been a journalist for 25 years now, and in my head... 1990 was, oh, about 10 years ago. Seriously, nobody correct me here. It was 10 years ago. As you heard, Bly went to a university in England. That's because her parents were British. Bly was born in Washington, DC. As I grew up, I felt very British (laughs) because even though
0: we lived in, in Northern Virginia. So I do have dual nationality.
1: British, and American. A nice combination when you're studying the beginnings of American history, right?
0: Very much so. My father really got a big kick out of the idea that here I was in Virginia digging up British ancestors, you know,
1: (laughs) so. It was on July 25th, 1609 that Admiral William Summers, head of a nine-ship fleet en route to Virginia, spied land after being blown off course. His intended destination was Jamestown. He landed in Bermuda. But before we get to how that ship, known as the Sea Venture, got so far off course, I think we need to understand what this voyage was all about. You know, how we got here, A 300-ton merchant ship, called the Sea Venture, departed England in June of 1609. The
0: Sea Venture was the flagship, so that's the main ship leading this fleet of nine ships. There were actually two pinnaces, which are smaller ships, and then seven larger ships.
1: The fleet was bringing the largest group of colonists and cargo yet to Jamestown.
0: Unfortunately, it had all the leaders intended to take over at Jamestown aboard. For some reason, they didn't split them up and put them on different ships.
1: We're talking the likes of Christopher Newport. He was the captain. Who was the most renowned
0: navigator captain of his time for sailing the Atlantic. He knew it like the back of his hand. He had brought some of the first settlers to Jamestown in 1607.
1: Also on board, Sir George Summers, the Admiral of the fleet, John Rolfe, Sir Thomas Gates, and William Strachey, the future secretary of the Virginia Company of Jamestown. Remember Strachey, his writings are key to our tale. This fleet
0: had, they say about 600 people. The sea venture itself had 150. And there were women now on this fleet, which is kind of a new thing, right? Because before that, we did have a couple of women come, but that was an unusual thing. But now there are women joining their husbands or coming with their husbands and bringing their children along. And we know that there were two births en route. Neither of the children survived.
1: This was a third resupply voyage to the Jamestown colony. And it took a slightly different and faster route than the original 1607 journey, essentially to avoid the Spanish in the West Indies.
0: So the idea was to shorten the route by sailing further north. Samuel Argo, a captain, had proven that that could be done and you could get there in eight weeks.
1: But the fleet left a little later than expected and unbeknownst to them, sailed right into hurricane season. The first seven weeks of the voyage were uneventful, but what lie ahead? To quote Shakespeare, sound and fury. Only a week out from what is now Virginia The fleet barreled into a tempest.
0: Skies were darkening and the seas were getting rough. They describe it as a terrible storm. The seas were overwhelming the ship. The ship itself was flooding. They say that there was water in the hold Five feet over their ballast, the ship was coming, popping apart at the seams. That's the scary thing. So men were going down into the hold by candlelight, looking for the leaks. Uh, at one point, they say they they broke up open a barrel of beef and stuck the meat in the hole to stop it up. And they had men working around the clock for, I think they say, four days and three nights, pumping the water out of the out of the ship. They had to do it constantly, or bailing with, with barrels to try to keep the ship afloat. It must've been just terrifying, especially for the women and children who were probably below decks for their own safety, but then the water is rising beneath them.
1: Anyone else having this Titanic visual, you know, from the movie, James Cameron?
0: I know, I mean, they're brave, to take the trip anyway it must have been a horrible thing because the ships were not made for passengers basically (laughs) you know they were uncomfortable no privacy
1: one small ship is lost in the storm seven others in the fleet made it to jamestown in terrible shape one limped in with a broken mast the sea venture got separated completely blown off course it struggled just to stay afloat they're floundering around. They think they're going to
0: die. They actually say things like, "As we're pumping, we see all the bread coming out through the pump. So, so the leak must be down in our our bread room."
1: At this point, they believed they are doomed. So, what do you do? Find a stash of alcohol, of course.
0: They bring that up, and they just say, "You know, we're going to die anyway. Let's just toast each other and..." you know, consign our fates to the Almighty. So they start drinking it.
1: William Strachey actually wrote about this moment and a few years later, it shows up in Shakespeare's The Tempest, one of many connections to the play that have been made throughout history. Back to our story, after pretty much giving up with no hope of finding the other ships in the fleet, unsure of their own survival, Sir George Summers, the Admiral of the Sea Venture, spies land in the distance.
0: They're still a little ways out from land. They're not able to get close enough, actually put everybody off onto land. They're about half a mile away. I actually went to Bermuda and was taken out by boat to go over the shipwreck site. I think that Christopher Newport was probably at the helm and it was he who managed to wedge the ship, they say between two rocks, but it may have been sort of the coral ring that surrounds the island. So he was able to keep the ship upright through that maneuver. And they were able to get everybody off safely. They would ferry them off with a small boat that they would have on board the ship.
1: They salvaged what they could from the Sea Ventures decks, taking oak, planking and iron fittings even food that hadn't been lost or ruined. All of the men and women aboard survived and escaped to the shores of Bermuda.
0: They really were lucky in many ways on how it sort of ended up.
1: And then they landed in paradise.
0: They landed in Bermuda, which at the time had the reputation of being the Isle of Devils. I mean, it was very hard to land on it actually because of this coral ring that's around. The, you know, you have to find the exact way in. There had been castaways on the island before. We know that for a couple of reasons. One is because there's a rock with an inscription from a Portuguese sailor that's on the island that's dated uh, before the sea venture. Also, there were pigs, hogs on the island, which is believed that either swam ashore from a, a Spanish shipwreck or they were deliberately left as a feeding station so if other ship you know Spanish ships should come by and need food they might send a small ship into the island to grab a hog or two
1: Bermuda was known as the Isle of Devils because it was so difficult to land on but also because it was home to a bird known as the cahow. It's a petrel, it's only
0: native to Bermuda, it's re- related to the albatross, and it is nocturnal and it makes a screeching sound. How, 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 like that, you know, as it flies around at night and apparently it would fly into sails and it would, you know, land on people and I guess mariners just got freaked out by it.
1: <laughs> Dear God, we've gone from Titanic to Hitchcock's the birds.
0: How, 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 how.
1: I can't deal <laughs> the crew of the sea venture just escaped death but they weren't necessarily sure of their new surroundings
0: so they're a little a little skeptical when they kind of realize where they are <laughs> and i'm sure they thought they were so bad off you know with the shipwreck but actually Everyone who made it to Jamestown ended up starving. I mean, really, they ended up with the best of all worlds by this terrible storm.
1: To tell us what happened next, we have two eyewitness accounts and writings passed down through history. The one we'll focus on is from William Strachey.
0: He traveled in theatrical circles. He was very articulate.
1: Once safely on the island, the crew and passengers build cabins out of palmetto branches.
0: They find lots of food in the palmetto trees, there are berries and all kinds of things that they can eat. Besides the hogs and the birds that I mentioned, the cahows, since they are nocturnal during the day, they're nesting, very easy prey. I actually said that they could stand with their arms outstretched and just make the sound, cahow, you know, just yell. And the birds would come. They were so curious as to what was going on. And then they could choose, you know, which one to pick to eat. They were so easy to catch that uh, they actually were thought to have gone extinct. When Bermuda became a colony a few years later, people were still hunting any cahau they found, and finally the governor had to pass a law that no more cahau should be killed because they were disappearing. They thought they were extinct until the 1950s, when a couple of a breeding pair of cahau were found on some of the outer coral reefs of Bermuda. And they were brought into Nonsuch Island, which is in St. George's Harbor, which has become a refuge for indigenous species.
1: For the survivors of the shipwreck, the following nine months were a second chance. They prayed for survival and rescue. Bermuda provided the crew and passengers with plenty of food from its plants and animals. They would forage, fish, hunt. There were numerous near mutinies, but Thomas Gates and George Summers prevented any real chaos.
0: They're very fortunate in that they have a shipwright along with them, his last name is Frobisher, and they have a handful of carpenters.
1: So under the direction of Summers, they build two smaller ships to try to get off the island and get to Jamestown. They name them the Patience and the Deliverance.
0: They're using planking from the ship that they were able to salvage, as well as the uh, trees on Bermuda, they'd say, are cedars, which they say is not such good wood. It's not the best, but it served its purpose. In the meantime, one of the guys, his name is Henry Ravens, volunteers to go ahead on a smaller boat and try to get to Jamestown and tell them that they're in need of help. So he leaves with a group of seven individuals.
1: They are never heard from again. Later, the crew of the Sea Venture will learn from the Paramount Chief Powhatan that this group did actually get to the colony, but was killed by the Native Americans when they came ashore. After waiting two months for this group to come back, the crew and passengers of the former sea venture decided it was time to try and make a go of it, using patience and hoping for deliverance.
0: They load everybody aboard these two chefs. Strachey remarks that they prepared food for just for the voyage. They didn't expect what they actually found at Jamestown. So they prepared birds, the cow, turtles. They feasted on sea turtles, huge sea turtles, fish, and ballasted their ships with Bermuda limestone. They say it's the best ballast of
1: its sort. It was May 10th, 1610. They set sail to Jamestown. Except for two people who decided to stay on the island. They
0: had decided this is a much better place They'd heard rumors before they had left, you know, about how terrible things were, James We know that there were two individuals who went off into the woods to live. And it's a good thing they did, because what they did, actually, is maintain claim to the islands for for England by by being there. They survived very well. They were joined later on by another man. There was another voyage to the Bermudas and wanting to pick up those guys and they didn't wanna leave and one guy wanted to stay with them. So they're called the Three Kings,
1: Three Kings of Bermuda. Meanwhile, 10 days after they set sail, the deliverance and the patience enter the Chesapeake Bay and creep towards Jamestown. (laughs) Nearly a year after leaving England, imagine the relief and elation they must have felt It soon gave way to horror and despair.
0: They find what they call skeletons, you know, anatomies, people starving. People, they're coming out and just saying, oh, you know, we're starved, we're starved. The fort is in horrible mess. The front gates are off its hinges. Individuals have burned houses. It's awful. And there are accounts of cannibalism that historians have discounted in the past because there had been no physical evidence of that.
1: But during an archaeological dig at James Fort, Bly and others actually found evidence of cannibalism. And you know we're taking you down this How We Got Here rabbit hole. I have to say, it's one of our more gruesome. Fair warning.
0: A 14-year-old girl who was processed for food. All that was found was her skull and a piece of her leg, her tibia. She was found in a, what we call a trash pit. So this is a pit that the colonists would dig to discard food waste, you know, especially if they're animals about you don't want to attract wild animals so you you bury your your trash and cover it up with dirt. These pieces of this young girl were found just thrown away with all their other trash. She wasn't in a a grave. When we took the pieces out of the ground, we noticed some very striking things. The first thing were these horizontal lines on her forehead. There were four of them, I believe, three or four. Very deep lines. We decided we better get the forensic anthropologist Douglas Owsley from the Smithsonian
1: Institution involved. Because at first, they weren't sure if this was evidence of a murder.
0: several months, he studied the remains, and he found all kinds of scrape marks on her chin and the inside and outside. and the back of her head, there was the point of impact. So the way he described it was that somebody tried to process her for food. Now we don't think she was killed to, to be eaten. We believe that she was dead, you know, she had died, and they very quickly, you have to Uh, get to the brain first because that goes bad very quickly but it's full of nutrients so what they were trying to do is get to that they had tried with the head chopping and i think looking at this girl's face someone lost you know lost it and just couldn't do it flipped her over hit her on the back of the head which did cause the skull to crack open and then the rest of her you know, skin would have been scraped off with a knife.
1: They could tell from this analysis that she was from the southern coast of England.
0: We could tell that she had eaten a lot of meat during her lifetime, which normally you would think, oh, that means she was upper-status person. But we did a, a lead test on her, and she had very little lead in her bones. Usually high lead levels do correlate with upper-class individuals because they're using pewter, a lot of pewter, in their drinking and eating. So what we think is that she was one of the maid servants who came over with one of these family groupings. Because on that fleet, that summer, there weren't women traveling by themselves. The Virginia Company, they wouldn't have paid for the passage.
1: I warned y'all. Let's take a deep breath and get back to Jamestown in late May of 1610. So these Bermuda-made ships, the Deliverance and the Patience, arrive there during the period known as the Starving Time. Just devastation. The colonists barely had any food and no water. George Summers
0: says, okay, we'll share what we brought, but we really didn't prepare for having to feed everybody. That's why we find, as archaeologists, Cahau bones in the remains, huge sea turtles that are like four feet in diameter, their bones, also tropical fish. This evidence was all found archeologically. There's no other explanation for them being there. The Cahao would not fly to Virginia. They didn't, they were just
1: local to the Bermuda Isles. Not long after arriving, the governor, Thomas Gates, realizes Jamestown is hopeless.
0: Looks around, realizes they have no chance of getting anything from the Indians. For one thing, the fort had been under siege from the Indians. That was what kind of led to the starving time in the first place. The Paramount chief had decided he'd had enough of the colony and wanted to get rid of them. And one way to do that was to kill any Englishman they saw venturing out from the fort, sort of pen them in. There's no way they could get food. Another was that the Indians, it was spring, and they had left to do their spring planting. So there was nothing growing anyway. Even if they tried to go and attack the Indians and grab food, there was nothing available, right?
1: So Governor Gates ordered, they abandon the fort and go home. They buried their cannon in
0: front of the fort in ditches because they didn't want, in case the Spanish came along or something, they didn't want them to be available. They packed anything of value that they could turn into money once they got home, back to England. Packed everyone aboard, and their idea was to sail the two ships that were at Jamesport plus the two that had come from Bermuda, to put everybody aboard there and sail up to Newfoundland. And then reposition individuals aboard the English fishing fleet that was in Newfoundland to sail across the Atlantic. They didn't trust that their ships
1: would make it. On June 7th, 1610, they fired a final salute and sailed down the James River to make their way home to England.
0: So they start out down the river. They stop around Mulberry Island, that's down near present-day Newport News, waiting for the tide and the winds to shift the next day but before
1: they ever make it to open waters.
0: They see a small boat coming up the James River. And it's an advance boat from a fleet of ships, three ships, that had just arrived from England carrying new colonists, new provisions, lots of provisions, and a new governor who had been appointed for life. His name was Lord Delaware. Not Delaware, Delaware. He was the most rich individual who had come to Jamestown thus far. He actually subsidized a lot of the supplies and the ships himself.
1: As for the survivors of the original sea venture... They have to turn around, <laughs> and they have to go back. And I'm
0: sure, oh my gosh, I can just imagine the feelings of the men, you know, aboard there, because they had actually wanted to burn Jamestown as they left. Gates wouldn't let them do it. He said, made some remark, well, maybe some better people than we shall come along and re-inhabit, you know, the space. <laughs> so they're they're made to turn around, and with a lot of pomp and circumstance sort of greet this new royal government. You know, he's he's coming with 50 halberdiers. Those are uh, bodyguard carrying special ceremonial pole arm. They're all dressed in red livery, so in red clothes. He makes these speeches in front of the fort. The minister, you know, says a few words and Jamestown's reestablished and they set to work at rebuilding the fort.
1: And Bly, as an archaeologist, actually found that in a dig.
0: Everything prior to the arrival of Lord Delaware had been sort of thrown into any available hole, and that meant wells and trash pits, ditches, and any cellars to houses. Lord Delaware's proclamation to cleanse the town meant that everything was pushed into these holes, and it, it was rebuilt. Things were rebuilt on top. And that's exactly what we found.
1: There's also one more important Bermuda find that changed the fate of Jamestown. Tobacco.
0: That is recorded in George Summer's map of the islands. He actually went all around the island to this wonderful map, and he's got Tobacco Bay listed. It's probably left from a previous castaway, probably the sweet Spanish Tobacco seeds that everybody preferred over what was being grown at Virginia, which was a very harsh smoking tobacco. It's called Rustica. And so it's very possible that in his nine months in Bermuda, John Rolfe experimented with tobacco and brought seeds from Bermuda to Virginia to start what really saved Jamestown after all, was tobacco.
1: The golden weed transformed Virginia's future fortunes the story of the Sea Venture, a meaningful moment to mark.
0: If this all hadn't happened, I don't know if Lord Delaware would have stayed if he had found that people had left or not. The Sea Venture story is the beginning of Bermuda. They have the Sea Venture on their flag. It's a very important story, I think. Hope and tenacity and persistence, and that spirit that a lot of uh, anthropologists think undergirds the American spirit today. It all started from these people who are willing to venture so much looking for a better life. I could actually say from personal experience that was my my parents as well. You know, I'm the first born American. It's a really compelling and important story.
1: July 25th, 1609, the admiral of a sinking ship that barely survived a tempest spies land, accidentally discovering a tropical paradise in Bermuda, an unknowing escape from the gruesome fortunes that awaited the sea venture in Jamestown. Shakespeare wrote in his Tempest, Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. These people, once a band of castaways, became the only lifeline between starvation and survival, helping transform a failed colony into a new nation. This podcast is
0: sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov.
1: Crack open the history books. It's time for the first major battle of the Civil War. July 21st, 1861. If you're thinking the Battle of Manassas, you are correct. If you called it Bull Run, you are also correct.
2: During the war, certain naming conventions kind of came into play. The Confederate Army generally named battles after local crossroads or towns, hence the Battle of Manassas. Union Army, on the other hand, took to naming battles after significant or local geographic features. So the Battle of Manassas for the Union becomes the Battle of Bull Run, the Creek.
1: Whatever name you have for this conflict, it sparked a shocking realization. These were two deeply divided sides willing to lay down their lives for their legacies. Joining us for this consequential clash is Jim Bailey.
2: I'm the Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services at Manassas National Battlefield Park.
1: What is your background? Are you a Virginian?
2: I am not a native Virginian, although the Baileys hail from the Shenandoah Valley back into the, uh, the 18th century. But I live up near Baltimore, I got my undergraduate and graduate degrees in American history, uh, specifically the, the Civil War. And that's something I knew that I was always going to do. When I was very young, seven, eight, my father took me everywhere in Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania in the 1980s during the 125th anniversary of the Civil War. So as a young boy, going to these big battle reenactments and walking through the camps, I could smell the smoke of the fires. I could, I could hear the horses whinny and, and hear the artillery and, and, and musketry crackle during, uh, during the reenactments. I could touch the, the wool uniforms and feel the heavy weight of the musket. I'll never forget it. As a, as a young boy, history was alive. I knew in that moment that history was going to be a part of my life and I was going to go to college and major in history.
1: Side note here, history was also my favorite subject when I was in school. But graduating college with a history degree can be a little daunting.
2: I was thinking everyone goes to college and they major in history and we all come in differently, but we all leave as uniform historians with the same skill sets and realizing, well, that's not really how college works. And just trying to figure out, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to do with history? In one of my very first history classes, a park ranger came in to talk about volunteering for the National Park Service and working seasonally as a a ranger. And so at 18, I said, I'm in, and I never looked back.
1: Jim Bailey's been with the National Park Service for 21 years now. The perfect person to take us on this historic journey, 160 years into the past, onto the rolling hills tucked in behind a creek called Bull Run about halfway between Centerville and Manassas. It was four months after the first shots were fired at Fort Sumter. In
2: 1861, after Fort Sumter, Lincoln issues his call for, for 75,000 volunteers and they begin to arrive in drips and drabs into the capital, and they're put under the command of General Irvin McDowell, a force that will eventually number around 35,000. And you're taking people that arrive in uniform, or I should say, some arrive in uniform, uh, fully equipped, others do not. By late June, early July, you know, they're uniformed, they're equipped, they look like an army, but they're not really. A few months ago, these were farmers and shopkeepers. How well would we do if we suddenly did a a crash course with the Marines and then were expected to go fight? It takes time to develop the Union Army under McDowell. So that's why you go from April to May to June, and then here we are in mid-July.
1: Across the way, the Confederates are doing the exact same thing in Manassas turning farmers into fighters, building up an army. And if you're wondering why the first major land battle comes to a head in Manassas, it's pretty simple.
2: They can look at a map and they can draw a straight line from Washington, D.C. to the new capital of the Confederate States of America in Richmond. Clearly, the the strategy of the North would be to take the Confederate capital and to advance on as straight a line as possible. Manassas is in the way.
1: Manassas is also a critical rail juncture.
2: If you're the Confederate Army, you've got to worry about defending Northern Virginia. You've got to worry about throwing troops out in the Shenandoah Valley. There are multiple ways that the Union Army can come into Virginia. So you got to cover all your bases, right? But you want to be in a situation where you can rapidly unite those various pieces if you know that there's one major invasion coming. General Pierre-Gustave-Touton Beauregard, I love his name, P.G.T. Beauregard, he's at Manassas and and General Joseph Johnson is out in the Shenandoah Valley. And they know that they can use this junction at Manassas to shuttle troops either east or or west, but most likely east.
1: So when McDowell, finally starts to move his Union army towards Manassas, Beauregard takes note.
2: Hey, to get to Manassas, you gotta cross Bull Run, which is this winding, meandering creek. It's a great place to cool off on a hot summer day, but it has a really steep, and fairly tall in spots southern bank so it's a great defensive position and there are very few major crossings lots of little crossings where you know if you want to move your herd of cattle across or something like that great but if you're trying to move an entire army somewhat difficult so it's easy for bull regard and the confederate army to fortify all these spots By July 18th,
1: the Confederates are ready for wherever McDowell and the Union Army try to cross Bull Run. And McDowell's not exactly ready to go to battle. Nobody is, but he pushes ahead anyway.
2: A lot of McDowell's troops are 90-day enlistments. And by early July, the clock is ticking. Lincoln is pushing McDowell like, hey, you know, if you don't do something soon, this army of 35,000 guys is going to melt away. And McDowell pushes back and be like, my guys are green, you know, They're, they're amateurs. And Winfield Scott said to him, you know, you are green, it is true, but they are green also. The same thing's happening on the other side. You need to do something with this army before it ceases to exist. And in fact, On the eve of battle, 4th Pennsylvania Infantry and a New York artillery battle that say, hey, it's July 20th, our enlistments are up, we're out, peace, and they leave. (laughs) So they miss the Battle of Manassas by one day.
1: There's tremendous pressure from Washington. President Abraham Lincoln wants this rebellion squashed quickly.
2: If you're Irvin McDowell, you've never led troops in, in battle before. So you're looking at the commander of the, the Army's, Winfield Scott, a veteran of the War of 1812. He has never moved 35,000 men before.
1: In fact, a majority of the Army officers have never moved this many troops all at once.
2: McDowell's looking to these old Army officers, and they, they really don't have much assistance or advice to give them, except for, go do something, you need to go.
1: To set the stage, McDowell and his undertrained, enthusiastic volunteer army of 35,000 is set to go up against Beauregard's equally green Confederate forces behind Bull Run. McDowell is trying to make quick work of Beauregard's army before Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston can join them. Remember, Johnston's army wasn't far away. It's in the Shenandoah Valley. On July 17, 1861, four days before the battle would begin, McDowell sends a few troops down toward Bull Run at Blackburn's Ford, near the center of Beauregard's line. They're led by General Daniel Tyler.
2: He had sent a division down to see what kind of strength the Confederate army was at Bull Run in. And Tyler picks a pretty sharp fight, suffers a lot of casualties, the Confederates come out of the woods and down to the ford like a beehive. He bit off a little bit more than he could chew. So that let McDowell know okay, you know, the Confederate army is in strength along Bull Run, trying to force a passage across this creek, which, you know, in some cases is a few inches deep at a ford. In other places, you know, several, you know, four, five, six feet deep. You can't really move artillery across very quickly. It's very rocky and uneven and, and steep banks. He's got to figure something out. So he takes a couple of days and hatches a strategy to outflank the Confederate army by moving troops to the north and coming down on what will be the left flank and behind the Confederate position on Bull Run. That's the plan.
1: But we know by now how most battle plans go down in history, not like they started or were envisioned. While the Union wasted valuable time trying to find a crossing at Bull Run and get some intel, Confederate General Johnston got his troops in the Shenandoah Valley onto trains.
2: Johnson is bringing out his troops as fast as possible from the Shenandoah Valley, and it's the first time that you have this massive troop movement by rail. Passenger trains crammed with regiments and, and artillery. They're arriving and being moved down along Bull Run, not to where the battle will eventually take place, around the fields of the Matthews and, and Henry Farm. That's not a strategic location or, or, or crossing. Before the 21st, Union officers, they can hear the whistles of these trains, these steam engines coming into Manassas, and they know that those trains are bringing Confederate reinforcements. What's really neat about visiting the battlefield today is you can be on Henry Hill and hear a diesel horn from from a train still going through Manassas. And I always get goosebumps.
1: And because of this delay and the new plan from McDowell, the Confederate army swells to around 32,000.
2: And then McDowell launches his flanking maneuver on the morning of the 21st, but again, No one's moved this many troops before. McDowell's never commanded an army like this. And the devil is in the details.
1: McDowell's early morning advance up Bull Run Creek to cross behind Beauregard's left is hampered from the start. The men who were supposed to be making this trek for several miles to get behind Confederate lines don't leave first. Instead, General Tyler's men move towards Bull Run Creek as a diversion a faulty one.
2: So your diversionary troops, which have all morning to get into place, are the ones that are sent out first. And so your flanking assault has to wait. And hours go by. And then the road they're going to take is little more than a farm lane. They got to cut down trees. They're trying to move artillery. By the time they cross Bull Run at Sudley Springs Ford, the Confederate Army knows they're there. The whole point of this march and this attack is to surprise the Confederate left, and it's failed.
1: And this is not like today, where you can pick up a radio and tell folks what's going on in your position on a battlefield.
2: Command and control is is very difficult when you don't have radios. You know, they're not watching these movements unfold via satellite like they can today. It takes time. And if you're not in the right place at the right time talking to the right person, things can go awry. So they've got thousands of troops coming down the road from Sudley Springs Ford.
1: And a Confederate captain named Nathan Evans is throwing troops into the path of the Union Army. He gets 900 men into
2: position. Yeah, 13,000 marching up on on 900. Yes, if they had taken the time to deploy and move forward, they would have just rolled right over Evans' 900 men and, and kept going. Even if you did have that command and control, just... Deploying regiments from a line of march into the line of battle and moving them forward across farm fields and fences and things like that and uneven ground, it takes time.
1: The battle began around 9.30 in the morning on Matthews Hill.
2: There is only one federal regiment, the 2nd Rhode Island, that goes in against Evans' 900 men. And then what happens over the next hour and a half is that the Federal Army starts throwing units into the fight piecemeal, one at a time. McDowell is not there as the Army commander directing everything. Once the battle unfolds, really control, it goes down to almost the regimental level. So you have colonels or company captains who are making decisions, and it's it's very confused. McDowell still has somewhere around, you know, 10, 11,000 troops that have not seen battle. They're still fresh, but again, they start moving forward piecemeal down to the Warrington Turnpike. There's a sharp firefight around the Robinson farm and around Young's branch, which was a calf deep stream and Confederate soldiers plunge into it and they use the, the stream bank as a breastwork. So there's there's fighting around that stream and the Robinson house for another hour or so.
1: The federal's do have the upper hand throughout much of the morning, and they drive Confederate forces back.
2: You know, if you're General McDowell, what does victory look like? What is the definition of victory? This is the first major battle. Did we win the battle because we caused the the Confederate force on Matthews Hill to to leave? Is that the end of the war. I mean, he's riding up and down the line when when the fighting on Matthews Hill ends, shouting victory, victory, and everyone's cheering. And then they look across to Henry Hill and they see more Confederates and more guns and they start to realize, huh, maybe this isn't gonna be as easy as we thought.
1: What Matthews Hill did was by General Beauregard and General Johnston on the Confederate side, time to start rushing troops up from Manassas. So these retreating Confederates they rallied on an open hilltop near the home of the widow, Judith Henry. That's when a brigade of Virginia regiments, led by General Thomas Jackson, assembled. Jackson forms the scattered Confederate artillery into a formidable line
2: on the eastern slope of the hill. At two o'clock on the afternoon of July 21st, McDowell realizes that the battle is not over. That while he may not be sure what victory is, This is not it. They're still fighting to be done. He can see some cannon up on Henry Hill. He's not sure how many Confederate troops might be there. And he decides on ordering two batteries of artillery to Henry Hill to start firing at the Confederate artillery and and, and basically to see what happens.
1: But when they start firing, it happens right next to Henry House. And Judith Henry is still inside.
2: She's... 85 years old. She was born in 1776. So this woman who was born the year the nation was birthed is present on the field of battle in the year of the nation's dissolution. And Confederate sharpshooters had taken over her home. And so they start firing on the Union artillerymen. And the Union artillerymen, they don't know that there are any civilians in the home. So they wheel their guns and just start blasting the home one of the the shells that that burst in the house mortally wounds Judith Henry in three places so she will linger until nightfall when she will will die as uh, the only civilian to be killed in the battle which is just it's just crazy to think about one morning you're you're in your home and the next minute this major battle just unfolds uh, all around you, I can't can't even imagine.
1: Just astounding. And in case you were wondering, Judith supported the Confederate cause.
2: She's a Virginian. She did own slaves. She wasn't outside of her house waving a Union flag and, and, and taunting General Jackson. You know, her family had tried to get her moved when the battle began but due to her age and she was fighting disease, she was in a lot of pain, and she basically convinced them to take her back to the house.
1: Jackson's men hold firm on Henry Hill. It's out of the ashes of this fighting that Jackson's legendary nickname is born. It's said that Confederate General Bernard B. encourages his own brigade to rally with Jackson, who he declares is standing like a stone wall.
2: Some would say that after the fight on Matthews Hill, as General Bernard B.'s troops have broken and are moving to the rear, that B. points up at Jackson and says, "'There stands Jackson like a stone wall. "'Rally behind the Virginians.'"
1: There's debate about exactly what was shouted, and Confederate General B. took the meaning of his words to the grave. He was killed in action. But from that moment, Jackson is known as Stonewall.
2: He's a hard fighter. Whenever the dirty work needs to be done, the Stonewall Brigade, as it will become known, is who you want to have.
1: It's around four in the afternoon, and after hours of the battle, sort of looking like a seesaw, where both sides are making headway, then falling back or losing position, the Confederates are starting to pull ahead
2: it's not looking good. McDowell is running out of troops. By 4 p.m., he's only got about 5,000 freshmen left, and he directs them into the fight, but instead of going to Henry Hill, they move on an adjacent ridge known as Chin Ridge. What happens is McDowell throws in, you know, basically the last fresh troops he has, Beauregard is getting more and more fresh troops, fresh brigades are, are coming up. And so you end up with this fight that transitions from Henry Hill to Chin Ridge. And that's where one of my favorite stories from the battle takes place.
1: Some Confederate troops that have been on the march all day, they're tired, they're hungry, they haven't had a chance to stop and eat
2: and they're getting thrown into battle to to fight these these Union troops up on Chin Ridge. And as they're moving up the side of the ridge, they discover that there are all these blackberry bushes. And it's too much of a temptation. I mean, the entire Confederate assault slows down. These guys are reaching out and grabbing blackberries and cramming them in their mouth. And officers are riding up and down the line, yelling
1: to their men, get moving, get moving.
2: One Confederate, McHenry Howard of the 1st Maryland, he said that his regiment resolved itself into a crowd of blackberry pickers. <laughs> so, I mean, you just imagine these officers swearing at the troops, I mean, bullets are whizzing by, men, you know, men are falling and becoming casualties, and guys are stopping, they under fire to pick blackberries. Howard wrote that, you know, when they finally got moving, whenever an unusually attractive bush was passed over, We reached down without stopping and stripped off berries, leaves, and briars, which we crammed into our mouths. For days afterward, I was occupied extracting the thorns from the palms of my hand. I mean, so that's that's how hungry uh, they had to be.
1: Stonewall Jackson's men advance across the top of Henry Hill and push back the Federal infantry, capturing some of the guns.
2: Preserving battlefields and maintaining national parks are, are so important because you can read about history happening, but when you actually walk the terrain and you see, you know, kind of the, how, how high Henry Hill is from the surrounding bottomland uh, where the creek is uh, and, and the intersection, you think about troops having to surge up the hill into fire crossing all the the various creeks that were there across the battlefield. It gives you an appreciation for how quickly things can get out of hand and how difficult it was for either side to coordinate troops. You're talking about a battlefield that stretches for a few miles, north to south and, 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 and then east to west.
1: In the chaos and madness of the shadows of blue and gray, the withdrawal of the Union Center quickly spreads to the flanks. The Federals retreat. McDowell's lost.
2: He's lost all control. This is no organized withdrawal or retreat. This is a full-fledged route. Everyone's going in the direction they came from that morning. So if if you came with the flanking, assault at Sudley Springs Fort, that's where you're going because that's the only thing you know. If you if you cross the bull run with Sherman's Brigade at, at uh, the farm Ford, that's where you're going. <laughs> Thrown into that mix is Confederate cavalry. Confederate artillery is still firing on the mass of stragglers, and eventually Confederate infantry and cavalry will actually set out in pursuit of the fleeing Union troops and everyone's making their way back to to Centerville trying to find their unit, or saying to heck with it and going all the way back to to Washington, D.C.
1: The Confederate Army is disorganized by the victory. Beauregard can't really mount that vigorous of a pursuit. And Let's go down this rabbit hole for a second. It's a good one. Several congressmen actually made the trip to Manassas from DC that morning to watch the battle play out. And when the Union began to retreat, they tried to take action to no avail. One senator from Michigan tried to block a road to stop Union soldiers from leaving. Another from Ohio picked up a discarded rifle and threatened to shoot any soldier who ran. Remember, the Union's goal was to reach Richmond and quash this rebellion. On the day of the battle, a member of Congress actually made it all the way to the Confederate capital. New York representative Alfred Eli arrived to Richmond as a prisoner of war. The smells of burnt gunpowder, blood, and death filled the battlefield. In the end, there were nearly 5,000 casualties.
2: These are the largest armies that have moved into battle in American history, close to 5,000 casualties, which is just horrifying and shocking to both the North and the South at the time, and, and yet would be dwarfed by later battles. For the South, you know, yeah, the the victory affirms their national identity and morale skyrockets. In the North, depression is going to set in frustration, a lot of finger-pointing, but it also prompted reflection on everything that the war was about and that the war threatened.
1: By July 22nd, the next day, the remains of the shattered Union Army reached the safety of Washington, D.C. McDowell is later relieved of his command, replaced by Union Army General George McClellan. For both sides, this was a horrifying moment and a realization of how long this war is going to be. Americans fighting Americans. To capture the sentiments of the time, Jim Bailey brought out a letter that was written seven days before the battle On July 14th, 1861, it was penned by Major Sullivan Ballou from the 2nd Rhode Island. It was written to his wife.
2: And he said, I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged. And my courage does not halt or falter. I know how strongly American civilization now leans upon the triumph of government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. Powerful stuff. And what's amazing about Sullivan's letter is that he's writing to his wife his feelings about the cause in which he is engaged. He struggles at times. I cannot describe to you my feelings on this calm summer night when 2,000 men are sleeping around me, many of them enjoying the last, perhaps, before that of death. And I, suspicious that death is creeping behind me with his fatal dart and communing with God, my country, and thee. So Sullivan had a premonition that he was not going to survive the battle. I mean, can you imagine? He's he's trying to write what he believes is going to be his last letter to his wife and his family, trying to explain and justify why he's left them and enlisted.
1: Does he make it out of the battle?
2: He does not. He is mortally wounded with the fighting on Matthews Hill.
1: His regiment, the 2nd Rhode Island, was the first regiment to engage at Manassas on the morning of July 21st.
2: I think one of the most powerful passages for me, having young children, myself, having boys, Sullivan Ballou had two little boys, William and Edgar. He closed his letter by talking about the next generation. At the end of the day, this is what this is all about, right? What kind of nation is he fighting for and bequeathing to his children? And he says, as for my little boys, they will grow as I have done and never know a father's love and care. Little Willie is too young to remember me long, and my blue-eyed Edgar will keep my frolics with him among the dimmest memories of his childhood.
1: (sighs) Not gonna lie, that letter got me good. It's home.
2: And it's a good reminder that these people that lived and fought here 160 years ago in one moment seems so distant right because the the country has changed our technology has changed how we how we live and go about our daily lives has has changed and yet we still all have families we still have friends and you know the, the cost of war sometimes we focus a lot on the causes of conflict and military maneuvers and historians debate about this or that. What has always spoken to me across the century and a half since the Civil War has been the individual experience of those Americans. July 21st,
1: 1861, young men who were farmers and shopkeepers just four months earlier pick up muskets and charge up and down the hilly slopes of a Virginia battlefield, across the meandering waters of Bull Run. A back and forth clash of blue and gray that would return to this very battlefield 13 months later. The first battle of Manassas creating a legend likened to a stone wall, foreshadowing the ferocious four years of fighting for the soul of a nation that would follow. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. This episode was written by me, Rachel DePompa, with help from executive producer Colton Weekly. As always, thank you to the never late to an edit, digital director, Kate Albright, and EP Colton Weekly. I'm a brat, Kate, I know. Also, thank you to our guests this week, the Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services at Manassas National Battlefield Park, Jim Bailey, and Bly Straub, the Senior Curator for the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. Pleasure to have you both on the podcast. We hope you join us again. Next week on episode four, the beloved blockbuster musical, Hamilton.
0: It brought history to the people of America more than anything in our lifetime. We've
1: never seen anything like it. The story behind The Room Where It Happened.
0: That is enormously important. We would have the capital of New York City today if if it hadn't happened.
1: Plus, you know it's a good story when Lady O comes knocking.
2: There was an Oprah Winfrey movie about it, right? So that's a level of exposure and, and discussion. That's incredibly important.
1: Known for years as Gila, the short but impactful life of the mother of modern medicine, Henrietta Lacks. it's important to balance teaching the history of the controversy of exploitation and victimization of the Lacks family with
2: the story of biomedical successes that Gila cells have led to.
1: And It's pesky, it's sneaky, dare I say a little ghosty. The beguiling gray ghost of the Confederacy. That was one of his greatest strengths, was that he didn't die in all of these hijinks. And finally, an explosive battle during the siege of Petersburg. It's his own harrowing event to get to that day. When the Union decides to surprise the Confederates from below.
2: The crazy part becomes when the reality of how
0: long this mine is gonna have to be, it will become the longest mine used in military history up, up until that time.
1: That's next week on episode four. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind and you use Apple podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. We have an Instagram account, How We Got Here, VA, follow us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at mbc12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.